So let's summarize what we've learned so far about the war chapters. Again, we're in topic number two. Topic number two of the Book of Mormon is that it was written for our day, specific for the challenges we would face. And one of the things that we have to do is win the war against Lucifer. We won it in premortal life. This is not the first time we win. We won it in premortal life and kicked him out. We must win it again and kick him out. He cannot be here during the millennium. But it's not that we kick him out. It's that he has no room here. He has no place. We have to make a world in which he has no place. So we must win this war. So principle number one is we have all power over him and his army. We determine who wins. It is not his strength. It is not his army that determines who wins. We determine who wins. We have all power over him unless we open the front door. Then we took, number two, we took a look at Amalekiah as a type of Lucifer. We understand how he's going to do it. He's going to just get into your heart and invite you to step one step down. Meanwhile, number two, we took a look at Moroni. What's Moroni doing? Moroni is strengthening their weakest places. And I think there's a great lesson in that. Are you willing to look at your life and recognize that you have some weaknesses? Your weaknesses are a gift so that you partner with Christ and strengthen them. Then we saw what happened when the Nephites attacked or the Lamanites attacked. The Nephites had fortified their cities. The only way in was through the front door and they had their strongest men there. If you tried to come in from the sides, we just shoot arrows and throw stones. They had a big ditch and pretty soon they start filling up the ditch with dead bodies. What was the body count in the weakest city? Noah was the weakest city and what was the body count at the end of the day? A thousand Lamanites were killed and not a single Nephite. So again, what was the conclusion? The Nephites had all power over their enemy. This war should be over. If that was the weakest city, where in the world are the Lamanites going to have any success? If they leave Noah and go somewhere else, they will run out of men. This war should have been over. Except the Nephites opened the front door. Chapter 49, they attack Noah. That should be the end of the war chapters. But chapter 50, they make mistake number one. Chapter 52 or 51, they make mistake number two. Now, just as a summary, what was mistake number one? The enemy is here. The enemy is here. What was mistake number two? The enemy is there. Contentions and dissensions. Now, here's the thing. How do you win back a fortified city? If we swip sides and you put the Lamanites in those fortified cities, how do we win them back? The rest of the war is about winning back the cities we lost because of our two mistakes. And if you don't pause and think about that, it will cost you dearly to win back the city you lost. Had you just stayed on top of the mountain 
and not forgotten who the enemy is, the war would be over. But when we forget that, how many couples, how many families turned on each other, thought the person they loved the most at one point was their enemy? And what will they do for the rest of their lives? They will spend the rest of their lives winning back the cities they lost when they forgot. It is a harsh reality of this war. A a fortified city is wonderful if you're in possession of it and your enemy can't go in. But if you lose possession of it and you have to win it back, it will cost you dearly. We won't number this as a lesson from the war chapters, but I would say one of the lessons is it is much better to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. Lesson learned. Now, before we leave this, there is within this war chapter a beautiful little micro story of exactly what we're trying to teach. You put everything into one little story. Um, because they lost their fortified cities, because the, we- the, the armies were weakened because of the contentions they had, they're going to lose this war. The Nephites are going to lose. They cannot win back their fortified cities. And it's in that setting that the most unlikely group steps forward and shoulders the burden to win this war. It is not the leadership of the church that will win the war. It's not. It's not the brilliance of our prophet or the magnificence of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. That's not what's broken. Who wins the war in the Book of Mormon? Who steps forward at a vital moment where the Nephites cannot succeed and is the determining factor and wins the war? It's the youth. You know what we're waiting for? We're waiting for a generation of youth who will learn how to be a modern-day stripling warrior. Now, what is a stripling? The only other place in the scriptures where the word stripling is used is to describe David. David was a stripling. And if you look at the Greek word, a human stripling, is most commonly accepted to be, if I were to pick an average age, 14. A a human stripling is about 14. Now, what are the chances a group of 14-year-olds beat the Lamanite army in hand-to-hand combat? That would be like one of our local middle school football teams taking on an NFL team. What are the chances a middle school football team will ever win to score a single point against an NFL football team? That's the likelihood of the stripling warriors surviving a military battle. Now, do you see? That's like the 10,000 talent debt. He's deliberately choosing a group that should never win Now, do you see the symbolism? The symbolism that Mormons saw is 
the, the likelihood of them winning that war is related to the likelihood of you succeeding in the world around you. However, turn to Alma chapter 57. Let's start at the end of the story. Alma 57. At the end of the battle, when they started to count, when, when they start to count the dead, verse 25. Now, maybe before, now let's read this first. Verse 25. It came to pass, so Alma 57, 25, it came to pass that there were 200 out of my 2,060 who had fainted because of the loss of the blood. Nevertheless, according to the goodness of God, and to our great astonishment, and also the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. But they all took a beating, but not one of them fell. Now, how many Lamanite warriors fell, or sorry, how many Nephite warriors fell? In the battle, so here's, here's the battle. So we have a fortified city, and a Nephite fortified city now possessed by Lamanites. The idea is that the stripling warriors are going to run in front of them and lure them out. And then Antipas is going to come in from behind. So we've got the stripling warriors in front, followed by the Lamanites and Antipas in behind. And so they stop. Remember where, where Helaman turned, they've turned around and Helaman says, one of two options. They figured out what we're doing and they've stopped and it's a trap or Antipas caught up to them. We don't know, what do you wanna do? And he said, they said, let's fight. But Antipas caught up and they started this battle here. This is Antipas leading a Nephite army, grown men, trained in war. And then on this side, the Lamanites are fighting 14 year olds. Now, in verse 26, how many in this battle, how many in this battle died? A thousand. A thousand. How many in this battle died? None. And more, and, and Helaman writes, Verse 26, now their preservation was astonishing to our whole army that they should be spared while there were a thousand of the other our other brethren who were slain. And the only explanation we have is divine intervention. So why would God intervene in this battle and not in this battle, unless he's trying to make a point. He didn't love these guys any more than he loves them. But why would he intervene and save the young ones if he wasn't trying to make a point? And here's the point. Your preservation in today's battle will be as miraculous as their preservation if you do what they did. See how he set up this whole story? If you will decide today to be a modern-day stripling warrior, 
your preservation will be as miraculous as was theirs. I think that's why he intervened here and not here. Because they had made some choices that illustrate your need and your fight and what you need to choose. With all my soul, I testify two things. Number one, anyone today who does what the the stripling warriors did will be as miraculously preserved as they were. And number two, someday we will say, verse 22, someday it is my testimony that this story is preserved in the Book of Mormon to, as a pattern. And someday, here's the list of those who became modern day stripling warriors. And someday we will say what? Verse 22. They're the ones to whom we owe this great victory. They're the ones. I believe that with all my soul. I don't think age has anything to do with it. I think I, at 54, am being invited to be a stripling warrior just like you are. And anyone who chooses to be a stripling warrior will be miraculously preserved. Now, I don't have as many years left as you do to be miraculously preserved. And so I ask the question today, what made them different? What qualified them for the divine intervention? So let's go back to chapter 53. Now I don't, you know I love lists. And you know I'm going to look for a list here. So allow me to make. I don't want to oversimplify. But I think it boils down to three. You want to be a modern stripling warrior. How to be a modern stripling warrior. All right, 53. Alma 53. Thank goodness we have this chapter. Alma 53. I'm going to highlight the phrase I believe is step number one. You tell me what you think about it. 16. Well, remember how their fathers wanted to fight, but they've sworn an oath not to? And Helaman says, I'd rather have you die than break your oath. I think the Lord would understand if you broke your oath, but I'd rather have you die. And they would rather die, but they didn't want the Nephites to die. And so they're in a quandrum. Verse 16, but, it, but behold, it came to pass they had many sons who had not entered into the covenant that they would not take up their weapons of war to defend themselves against their enemies. Therefore... And I think the next five words distinguish the stripling warriors. They did assemble themselves together. What makes you a stripling warrior? When do you join the ranks of the stripling warriors? When you choose. 
when it's your idea. Not mom's, not dad's, not tradition, not obligation, not guilt. I'm in. And I'm all in. I think that right there is the single, that's the start. It has to be their decision. It has to be. Now here's the irony. I don't think you've been given that chance yet. Do you remember mutual? Whose idea was mutual? Let's be honest. Whose idea was mutual? Whose idea was young men's and young women's? Whose idea was family home evening? Whose idea was everything you've participated in? Now, I think you're beginning to, well, I choose to go to institute. But whose idea is institute? Do you see my point? There has to be something when the youth say, this is what I'm doing. I'm not following. I'm leading. And I'm blazing a territory that might be alone and on my own. But I am in. This is my idea. Closest thing I've ever seen that I loved, and I don't think you guys are old enough, do you remember how old were you when President Hinckley died? So you were kind of. President Hinckley died in the middle of a, just a blizzard. I mean, it was snowy. It was a blizzard, and President Hinckley died. And then all of a sudden, the youth started texting each other. Didn't come from Salt Lake. It didn't come from a church leader. The youth started texting each other and said, do you remember? Let's dress up tomorrow. The next day was a snowy school day. And everyone went to school. All the youth of the church went to school dressed up in their finest clothing. It was their way of acknowledging that their prophet had died. And I thought, that's what we need more of. We need institute programs not run by adults, but run by young single adults. We need classes organized where you invite me to come teach instead of me inviting you to come learn. We need programs where the youth of the church say, we're in charge. This is our program. And we're, we're, we're starting to see it. But here's the thing. Who's starting to organize it? Who's starting to organize it? The old people. We're writing the policies to form young single adult committees. And I love that. I think that's brilliant. But that's not it, is it? That's close, but that's not it. It's when the young single adults form their own committees. Now, I know we're doing it under priesthood keys, and that's appropriate. But do you see my point? My point is, it has to be their idea. It can't be, well, they're telling us to. 
It's not, I've received an invitation and I'm going to do it. I think that's wonderful. But you become a stripling warrior when you cross that line and blaze new territory and say, I'm in and I'm going to establish my own programs. Not, you know what I mean by that. I'm not trying to say I won't go to the church's programs and I'm going to do things without priesthood keys. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't need the church to come up with a come follow me program for me to study the scriptures. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm going to study them with or without a church program to tell me to do so. You see the difference? That's number one. Let me give you an example. Young Spencer Kimball, 12th president of the church. Grew up in Thatcher, Arizona, where I spent eight years of my life teaching career. I started my teaching career right where he was a kid and it had a huge impact on me. I went back and read every conference talk I could find from Spencer Kimball. And this one changed my life. When I was a youngster, a stirring challenge came to me that moved me not a little. You know what? Let's read it. Let me share it. I want you to follow along. This is, this is significant. I think I'm still streaming. There it is. Oops. When I was a youngster, a stirring challenge came to me that moved me not a little. I cannot remember who issued the challenge nor under what circumstance it came. I remember only that it struck me like a bolt out of the blue heavens. The unknown voice postulates somewhere in his youth, he heard two men talking. And one said to the other, the Mormon church has stood its ground for the first two generations. But wait till the third and the fourth and succeeding generations come along. The first generation, fired with a new religion, developed a deep enthusiasm for it. Surrounded with bitterness, calumny of a hostile world, persecuted from pillar to post, they were forced to huddle together for survival. There was good reason to expect they would live and die faithfully to their espoused cause. The second generation came along, born to enthusiasts, zealots, devotees. They were born to men and women who had developed great faith, were used to hardships and sacrifices for their faith. They inherited from their parents and soaked up from religious homes the stuff of which the faithful are made. Now, as I describe this, you think of what's happening in the church today. They had full reservoirs of strength and faith to draw upon. But wait until the third and fourth generations come along, said the cynical voice. The fire will have gone out. The devotion will have been diluted. The sacrifice will have been nullified. The world will have hovered over them and surrounded them and eroded them. The faith will have been expended and the religious fervor leaked out. How many people are walking away from the faith of their parents? The fire has faded. That day, I realized that I was a member of the third generation. Heber C. Andrew Spencer. That day, I clenched my growing fists. 
I gritted my teeth and made a commitment to myself that here was one third generation who would not fulfill that dire prediction. That day he became a stripling warrior. And his, his preservation will be as miraculous as was theirs. Do you see number one? Now, I don't mean to be negative, but I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it very often. When an entire generation, when the youth of the church rise up and clench that fist and pound it on the desk and say, not us. I've seen individuals do it. I haven't yet seen a generation do it. And that I think is what this book is trying to beg. Will we have a generation of youth that rise up and say, I will not fulfill that prophecy. Not me. Number one. All right, thoughts, comments? All right, back to Alma 35, or Alma 53. I'm still dyslexic. Alma 53. Okay, number two. So they did assemble themselves together. Now, what are the chances a bunch of 14-year-olds running into battle is a good idea? As enthusiastic as they are, as committed as they are, what, is, what are the chances a bunch of 14-year-olds running in to fight the Lamanites is a good idea? What do they lack? Experience and authority. And so step number two, verse 19, they need a leader. And I think what's, what's implied in this? They would that Helaman should be their leader. They asked, they chose. He wasn't forced on them. They chose to follow him. Now, why Helaman? Why Helaman? Was he a brilliant military man? But was he a military man? Why choose him for battle? Who could they have chosen? They could have chosen Captain Moroni. They could have chosen Lehi. When the Lamanites found out that Lehi led the army at Noah, what did the Lamanite army do? They were depressed because Lehi was in charge. They could have chosen Lehi. They could have chosen Tiancum. Just that word scares off evil. Tiancum. Who'd they choose? And how much military experience does he have? None. Now, do you see the symbolism? Who do the youth of the church often choose as their leader? Some social media influencer, a musician, an athlete. Those are the Helamans, or sorry, those are the Moronis and the Tiancoms and the Lehi's. Who do the stripling warriors choose to lead them? That's a fascinating question. They would that he should be their leader. They chose Helaman. 
Now, what kind of relationship was there between Helaman and Stripling Warrior? What kind of relationship between youth and prophet will save the youth? Turn to 56. Alma 56. Let's see how Helaman felt about them. I'm going to read these quickly. If you want the whole list, we can give it to you later. 10, tell me what he calls them. My 2,000 sons, my sons. Verse 17, sons of mine. Verse 27, my 2,000 sons. 30, my little sons. Verse 39, my little sons. Verse 44, my sons. And verse 46, my sons. Now, I've heard that. I don't know if you caught President Nelson's face-to-face right after he became prophet. He stood up and said, I'm old enough where I don't care about things that don't matter. And then what did he say next? You matter. He had gathered the youth of the church. And he says, I'm old enough that I don't waste time on things that don't matter. You matter to me. That was Russell Nelson calling you what? My sons and my daughters. What did they call him? Verse 46. Father. It's not just, okay, I'll submit to the president of the church and obey him. I will have what kind of relationship with him? Parent, child. I would invite you to ask, what kind of relationship do you have with the prophet? Parent, child. Father, son, daughter. They, of all the people they could have chosen, all the influencers, all the famous people, they chose Helaman. And then did what? You want to be preserved miraculously. Follow a prophet. And then turn to 58 again. No, 57 again. But let's get to what we skip. Verse 21. Alma 57, 21. It's really simple, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, because I know it's not as simple as I'm making it sound. But their idea, that's my leader. And I'm going to do whatever he asks. Why did they not fall in that battle? I don't know what instructions they had been given. I don't know what warning the Lord had told Helaman to tell them. I wish that were in the Book of Mormon. It's not. But clearly, he said something to them that they followed, and it brought how many casualties? Zero. They didn't have that. They weren't able, and they fell. So I choose him as my leader. 
I choose him. Whether he's appointed to be president of the church, that's not the point. I choose, I would, that Russell Nelson is my leader. Now, I don't know if I'm there yet. I hope I'm striving to be there. But here's what I do. Here's who I choose. I have a notebook. Why can't you see this? All right, I can't show you. I'll do it here. I have a notebook of the 15 who I choose as my leaders. And then you open up number one. Oh, there it goes. And this is my relationship with him. This is my relationship with him. And this is what I do. There is no one's words I read more than his. This is my father, and he has the answers. And I want to know. So what I do is every time he yells out an order, every time my leader yells out an order, I make a note. I make a note of what the order was. Now, I promise the reason this story is in the Book of Mormon is that in this war, when so many forces are against us, when so many people are trying to destroy you, there is this little antidote on how to survive how to be miraculously preserved. Number one, it's got to be your idea. It can't be someone else. It's got to be your idea. Number two, choose carefully who you follow. Choose carefully who you would that should be your leader. And then obey with exactness. Fascinating what his last talk was all about. What was it? Overcoming the world. That's exactly what this story is about. Winning the war that begun in heaven. And how many orders did he give? And what did he say? It is my witness to you that the formula was written in the Book of Mormon thousands of years ago. I choose that one to lead me. And I choose. I met Russell Nelson when I was 18 years old. 36 years ago. I have not met him since then. But he is as much a father to me 
as my earthly father. I choose him. And he has said some stretching things for me over the years. But I testify. That if I do all the things where he says, now President Nelson words it very carefully, doesn't he? How does he always word it? He always says things like, my plea to you this morning, or I would invite you. He never ever forces himself. It's always this kind, my plea to you this morning is to find rest from the intensity uncertainty and anguish of this world by overcoming the world through your covenants with God. Now, if, if the pattern of the Book of Mormon holds true, we need to read 26 again. It's now maybe a little bit more significant. Yeah, this one's fine. Their decision... I, I would that he should be my leader and I will obey with exactness. I will know what he said and I will obey with exactness because that is father to me. He is father to me and I know I am son to him. And if that's the case, Amanda, would you read 26 again? was astonishing to our whole army, yea, that they should be spared while there was a thousand of our brethren who were slain. And we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God because of their exceeding faith in that which they had been taught to believe, that there was a just God and whosoever did not doubt that they should be preserved by his marvelous power. That's how to win the war. And it is, it is those people who will be preserved in this war. Now, that being said, since I have a few more minutes, let me throw in four, five, and six. I think I draw a big line here. But while, we are, while we're at it, let's throw in a few more. What are some of the attributes of the stripling warriors? If we go back to 53, it ends with some fascinating descriptions of them. Verse 20, other than young, what is the first quality to describe them? What is the first quality to describe them? Exceedingly valiant. Four? You got to get that whole phrase. I love valiance, but that... That valiance is not complete without that word. Would you agree? It's not that they were exceedingly valiant. I think that's a great word, but they were valiant for courage. Now, I know this is New Testament year, so let me just throw this in. I think one of the greatest lessons on how to be valiant for courage is contrasted by Pilate. Pilate interviews Jesus, and what does he say? Remember, the Jews want him put to death. What's the crime he's committed? Blasphemy. But the Jews can't execute him. The Romans have to do that. And the Romans aren't going to execute for a religious crime, right? 
So they have to convince a Roman leader that he's committed a capital crime under the Roman law. So Pilate interviews him and says, I find in him no fault at all. Meaning not only is he not guilty of a capital crime, I don't think he's guilty of anything. Now, what is the legal responsibility? What is the moral responsibility of a government official who interviews someone and is completely convinced that they're innocent? What is the right thing to do? You let him go. But that in this case is not very popular. Pilate wants to be right and liked. And so he starts to compromise. His wife comes and says, hey, have nothing to do with this just man, putting more pressure on him to set him free. But he decides to compromise. Can I, can I compromise with right to be liked? So first, he finds out he's from Galilee, so he sends him to Herod. Let Herod deal with him. Let someone else be the one that has to stand up and do the right thing and everyone hates. Let someone else do it. And his cowardice begins. I don't want to be brave and take a stand, so I'll just kind of step back and wait for someone else to take a stand doesn't work. Herod sends him back. And so he says, wait, you have a tradition where I condemn someone and set them free. I'll condemn an innocent man. I'll compromise and condemn an innocent man and then set him free. Do you see what he's trying to do? I want to be liked, but I want to be right. So I'm going to condemn an innocent man and set him free. Is that okay? Do we, success here? We both win here? And they say, we want Barabbas. So then he uses their own tradition against them and says, I will send him to the death if you accept blame for it. I'm washing my hands of this. Do you remember what they said? His blood be upon us. Now that, that was his hope to say, I'm, I'm going to kill an innocent man if you'll be responsible for it. I will. Oh, shoot. And so he gets all the way to here. What's his last attempt to be liked and right? He scourges him. He scourges an innocent man and puts him in front of them, a bloody mess, to say, am I done? Can I be done? And they say, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Now, here's the irony. Does he end up liked at all? What is courage? What does it mean to be exceedingly valiant for courage? I think this is the story. In those moments where I cannot be right and liked, 
I will be right. Because I know any attempt to compromise, I will end up neither right nor liked. So I'm going to be right. Now, if that were the, were, if that were the main quality of the youth of the church today, what kind of church would we have? If that alone, if that were the single quality that described the youth of the church, when they said, if I have to be right or liked, I choose right every time. That's courage. Courage isn't being willing to die. Courage, let me read it. This is Thomas S. Monson. James, do you mind? Courage becomes a living and an attractive virtue when it is regarded not only as a willingness to die manfully, but as a determination to live decently. A moral coward is one who's afraid to do what he thinks is right because others will disapprove or laugh. Now, how many youth did that last sentence describe? A moral coward is someone who is afraid to do what he thinks is right because others will disapprove or laugh. Now, what did the scriptures call the stripling warriors? Not a coincidence. Next one, strength, activity, true. They were strong, they were active, and they were true. Sober, um, go to 56. What does Helaman say about them? Verse 47, boy, if this one were true, they did think more upon the liberty of their fathers than they did upon their own lives. They'd been taught by their mothers and they held to the faith of their mothers that if they didn't doubt, God would deliver them. You just find all these wonderful little snippets. We read 57, let's go to 58. One more. Amanda, you're close, would you read 12 and 11? Yeah. Yea, and it came to pass that the Lord our God did visit us with assurances that he would deliver us. Yea, insomuch that he did speak peace to our souls and did grant unto us great faith and did cause us that we should hope for our deliverance in him. And we did take courage with our small force which we had received and were fixed with the determination to conquer our enemies and to maintain our lands and our possessions and our wives and our children and the cause of our liberty. Fixed determination. And then verse 40. James, do you mind? But behold, they have received many wounds. Nevertheless, they stand fast in that liberty wherewith God has made them free. And they are strict to remember the Lord their God from day to day. Yea, they do observe to keep his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments continually. And their faith is strong in the prophecies concerning that which is to come. You want to win the war? You want to be victorious? You want to be preserved? Be a stripling warrior. And again, I don't think it has anything to do with age. 
I want to be a stripling warrior. And I know how. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.